Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, My name is Julie, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to take a second to give a special welcome to any of you who are just checking out Res City for the first time today, um, or maybe you're joining us online. We're just really glad that you're here uh, to worship with us this morning. And this morning, we are going to continue our Advent series. If you couldn't tell from the Christmas tree and the candles, um, we are excited to be celebrating this season. So if you're unfamiliar with Advent, like Brett said earlier, Advent just means coming. So it's a time where we get to reflect on preparing our hearts and getting ready for the coming of Jesus in Christmas. Uh, And as Brett said, we also are reflecting and preparing for the coming of Christ to come back and to make everything right once and for all. So I love Advent. I'm always excited to celebrate it with you. Uh, And this year, our sermon series theme has kind of been about God keeping his word. So specifically, we've been looking at the Christmas story in the book of Matthew uh, and looking at the places where he says things like, and this took place to fulfill the words of the prophets. It actually happens kind of a lot in that short uh, narrative of Jesus' birth and a little bit after. And so we've just been, instead of saying, like, let's just kind of breeze past that. I know the main plot points. Uh, We're trying to look at those verses and say, okay, does this add to our understanding of Advent or of Christmas? How can we have a deeper sense of who God is and what it meant that he came uh, in the form of Jesus in the Christmas season? So we are going to be doing that again today, um, but I'm going to pray for us before we jump in. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for sending your son, for giving us a reason to celebrate this Christmas season. Um, I know that this time can be busy. There are a lot of distractions. There's a lot of things going on. And so, Lord, I just pray that this morning as we uh, gather here today to worship you, that you would just quiet our hearts, that you would help us to focus um, just on on you and try to understand you more, to have a deeper sense of who you are, who you've made us to be, and how that all plays out in the world. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so... For some reason this week, I've been asked several times what my favorite Christmas movie or Christmas special is, and uh, I have kind of a strange one. Um, It's called Claymation Christmas. Yes, thank you. Uh, I think that's from someone who I forced to watch it with me, so I'll I'll still take it. But it is not the normal uh, Claymation like Rudolph or Heat Miser, the kind of the standard ones you generally think of. It's very strange. Parts of it are just really weird and bizarre. Uh, But we watched it every year on VHS. My mom taped it when my brother was little in the 80s, and we've, like, continued to watch it. And then somehow my brother-in-law found a DVD copy of it on Amazon. (laughs) So we still watch it. Uh, And I love it. Uh, If you have seen it before, you are now my new best friend. Let's watch it together this Christmas. But when someone asks me, well, like, what's it about? Can you describe it to me? This is where it starts to sound kind of weird. Um, Basically, there are two claymation dinosaurs, um, one of them in a Santa suit and one of them in a tuxedo, uh, who are hosting a Christmas Carol special. And so it keeps cutting back and forth from these dinosaurs who have these, like, terrible jokes back and forth together to these other claymation scenes of other random claymation figures, animals, and anything you can imagine, uh, while Christmas music is playing. It's quite honestly the strangest Christmas special, and yet it holds a very special place in my heart. And as I was getting ready for the sermon this week, I kept thinking of it, because there is this one scene where they do the Christmas carol, um, Oh Christmas Tree, Oh Christmas Tree. 
And the way that the, the claymation works is that it's just, it zooms in really closely on one ornament that's like a gingerbread house, and it zooms in on the window of the gingerbread house, and then suddenly it's in like a whole new scene. And so now you're in somebody else's house, and then eventually it zooms in on their Christmas tree and on their tiny house ornament, and then you're in another Christmas scene. And it goes on and on and on until you reach like Santa, I don't know, Santa's house or his workshop, wherever he is. And then it kind of zooms all the way back out. And I was thinking of it because the passage we're looking at today, the reference that uh, Matthew makes is actually a reference that makes another reference. So we're going to be doing some of these like zooming in and then zooming into another thing. It's a little bit like reference inception um, if you've seen that movie. And so it's kind of a high concept at first. We're going to walk through how that all fits together. But then I'm going to try to bring it down and talk about what it means for us this Christmas season, try to get really practical. So today we are going to start in Matthew 2, verses 13 and 15. So last week, Joel read the section about King Herod and the wise men coming to worship Jesus, and we are picking up right after that. So Matthew 2, 13. When they, the wise men, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So that last verse there, that out of Egypt I called my son, is the reference that we're going to be looking at today. But the first scene that we have is actually um, the one that we've kind of been with this whole time. Baby Jesus born uh, and kind of all of the, the story that's happening and unfolding around his birth. So last week, Joel talked to us about how Herod was sort of, Herod was the king, and he was sort of faking or play-acting uh, this interest in worshiping Jesus. So he gets the wise men and he says, I want to worship Jesus too. Why don't you go find him and then I'll go too and I'll worship him. But what we find out from the text is really he had no interest in worshiping Jesus. He was sort of just playing along because he wanted to know more about who Jesus was. He felt threatened by this new person on the scene who was supposed to be a king and supposed to be a big deal. And so really he had no interest in worshiping. He actually wanted to kill him. And so what we see is that God tells Joseph through an angel, get out of here, right? Like leave, escape. He tells them to go to Egypt, and so they do. They basically become refugees in Egypt uh, until Herod dies, and God calls them back and says, hey, it's safe now, you can return. So in that sense, Jesus is called out of Egypt. So that verse, this idea of um, God calling his son out of Egypt, is a reference to Hosea 11.1. 1. So this is going to be our, our next zoom in, right? So if we're looking at those ornaments on the Christmas tree, we're zooming into the next scene. So this next scene um, is with the prophet Hosea. So a couple weeks ago, I talked a little bit about how in the time of the prophets, or during a lot of the prophets, the kingdom was split into two. And so Israel was in the north, and Judah was in the south. And we talked about how Isaiah, the prophet, was talking to Judah, kind of giving them some warning messages. Well, around the same time that Isaiah is doing this, there's a prophet named Hosea who's actually in uh, the northern kingdom. So Hosea is giving a similar, a similar message to Israel, saying, hey, you need to turn away from all these idols you're worshiping. 
and you need to worship God. Uh, they had the similar problems that Judah had, where they had started to worship other gods. They weren't really listening to what God was doing, and God was really grieved by this. He really wanted them to turn back uh, and to worship him. And so Hosea goes, and he tells them, um, to, hey, you need to be listening to God. You need to turn back to him. And as part of that, in chapter 11, this is where we get the reference from Matthew, he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So stay with me here. Hosea is now making a reference to another thing. So this is why I said it gets a little complicated. So Hosea is appealing to the people of God by saying, hey, let's remember this other time in history that God was really faithful to you. So that's where we get our next inception jump and our last one to this last scene, uh, which is the Exodus story. So Hosea is referencing a time in the history of God's relationship with his people when the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians. So this is like way back in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. Uh, It's like very beginning of the story. And the Israelites are crying out to God, and God answers their cry, much like a father would answer the cry of a a child. And so he sends Moses, and he says, go set my people free and call them out of Egypt. This is what is referred to as the Exodus, and it's like one of the most important stories for the Israelites in their history. Okay, so those are our three references. I'm going to recap because that's a lot to throw at you this early in the morning. Um, But we've got Jesus. And his family, uh, they flee to Egypt so that Jesus isn't killed by Herod. And then God calls them back, calls them out of Egypt. And then our second one was that the Israelites, they've started to worship other things other than God. And God is saying, hey, listen to me, come back through the prophet Hosea. And Hosea does this by referencing this story in the Exodus when the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians and God called them out of Egypt and out of slavery. And this is what happens in the Exodus. So there is a lot here that you could unpack. But this morning, the main thing I just want to talk about is how we see Jesus fulfilling the role of Israel in a sense. This is what scholars call typology, which you don't necessarily need to know, but it's kind of fun to know if you're interested in that kind of a thing. And we see that in the Exodus story, God calls his people out of Egypt, and now here, Matthew is calling Jesus out of Egypt. So Jesus sort of stands in as a type of Israel, of God's people. We'll explore more of what that means kind of throughout the message, but I've just first, you kind of have to see that parallelism. You have to see these two stories kind of lining up just right. And we see that Jesus, or Matthew, is placing Jesus in the place of Israel by quoting Hosea and saying that God called him out of Egypt. And if you really want to get nerdy and kind of like get into some of the fun things that I think are fun, I love literary uh, things in the Bible, but you see this Exodus imagery uh, right away in how Matthew describes Jesus and what he's doing in his life. And then in the very next chapter, he goes through the water in his baptism, very similar to how the the Israelites went through the Red Sea on their way out of Egypt. And then right after that, uh, Jesus goes into the wilderness and he spends time there, spends 40 days and 40 nights there, which is very similar to the 40 years that the Israelites spent wandering around in the desert after the Exodus. So if you're into the nerdy part of it, like I am, the literary stuff, you can see all the different parallelisms that 
uh, Matthew is kind of drawing out and showing us, look how Jesus fits this role of God's people um, that was supposed to happen in, for Israel. Okay, I know that I just, it's a big idea, right? That's the big concept. So as long as you can get the idea that there's sort of some parallelism ha- happening there, then we can kind of continue on and look at what does this look like for us today? Because to me, it's cool to see how scripture is put together the way it is. It's actually really like, um, gives me a lot of hope and gets me excited because I'm like, wow, this is like incredible how this all fits together. Uh, but it's not just that. It's not just meant to be like, hey, that's cool. Like, I'm co- that's cool that God does that. But it does give us something that we can hold on to and take with us during this Christmas season as well. So today I want to talk about how Jesus, as the promised Israel, uh, shows us that Jesus comes to bring us peace, love, and hope. So Jesus comes to bring us peace is the first thing I want to look at. And in this Old Testament passage that we have kind of looked at, these different references, we see that God calls his people out of slavery and into a life of peace. So in Exodus 2, uh, 23 and 25, this is right in the, the passage when the Israelites are in slavery, it says the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. God keeps his word. Uh, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So he saw their life in slavery, and he did not want that for them. He wanted something different. And then we see in Hosea, in verses 1 and 2, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And if you continue on, it actually says, The more that they were called, the more that I called Israel, the more they went away from me. So we'll see how grieved this makes God as we continue. But he has something in mind that his people, that he wants his people to come towards, right? He sees them in slavery. He sees the groaning and the difficulty that they're facing and experiencing, both in the Exodus when they're in actual physical slavery and in Hosea. And he's saying, I have something better for you. I want something more than that for you. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about um, how this is true for us spiritually as well, right? Worshiping anything other than God leads to slavery for us. What we think is going to save us is actually going to end up enslaving us. And we see this throughout these little snapshots of history with God's people. And you can see that God has clearly given his people a lot of chances, more than even just the ones we looked at today, where he's saying, Come back to me. Come out of slavery. I have something better for you. And yet over and over and over, we see God's people choose to return to slavery. They say, I'm rejecting what you have for me, God, and I'm going to choose my own path. For example, with the Israelites in Exodus, the Exodus story where they kind of like come out of Egypt in this crazy, miraculous way. They go through the waters, and it's just this like, Like, you can't even imagine the adrenaline of it, right? Like, it's a miracle, it's crazy. And then right away, they go out into the desert after they've been set free, and they're kind of confused about, like, okay, where are we going from here? They're probably tired, they're probably hungry. Uh, No, nothing good comes when you're tired and hungry. Um, And right away, they say, you know what? You should have left us in Egypt. At least when we were there, we had pots of food to eat, and we could eat whenever we wanted, and it was so great. 
highly debatable, right? Like they were slaves. I doubt that they had, they could eat whatever they wanted as much as they wanted. But they, even though they saw this miraculous thing, they saw God move in this huge, huge way that most of us will probably never see in our lifetimes, they still immediately when things got hard or when things were uncertain, they said, nope, I want to go back to what I had. At least I knew what to expect there. And this uncertainty, this like not knowing what you're doing, God, this is freaking me out, and I want to return to at least what I knew. And in Hosea, God says, the more I call them, the more I ask them, come, follow me, the more they turn away. And we were talking in our community group this past week about how uh, it's easy to look back at the Old Testament and think, like, wow, they are really dumb. <laughs> like, how did they not, like, they just saw this crazy, miraculous thing happen. How did they not trust God and know that he was going to do something and that he had a plan for them? And yet, let's be honest, we all do this all the time. We do this thing spiritually where it's like, yeah, there's something about our sin or there's something about whatever it is that enslaves us that we're like, well, at least it's familiar. At least I know what to expect with that. So I think I'm going to go back to that thing. Maybe it's not even a conscious choice, but we always end up turning our way back away from God and back towards these things that slave us. Maybe it's because they're comfortable. Maybe it's because change is hard and scary and often a lot of work. Uh, and it's just easier to stay put. And even though we know, we know that these things are not what God has for us, that they're not our best, that they enslave us, we continue to go back to them. It's almost like we have spiritual Stockholm syndrome, right? We've developed positive feelings towards these things that are actually sin and actually enslave us, but because we have grown comfortable with them, we sort of have this positive connection to them. Even though they're the things that are keeping us captive, we have this desire to continue to go back to it. And I think a lot of times this is partly because following Jesus doesn't give us instant gratification. <laughs> when we say, I want to make a change, I want to turn, I want to worship Jesus, it's hard. <laughs> and it takes work, and we're going to fail, and none of us like to fail, or at least I don't. Uh, and so we just continue to kind of inch our way back towards the thing that we came from. Things like, maybe you want to spend more time in God's word, and you're like, I'm going to start doing that, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this tonight. Before I go to bed, I'm going to read some, some scripture. And so you open your Bible app on your phone, and maybe the verse you picked was kind of confusing, or maybe it just didn't feel like it applied to you. And so you're like, okay, I'll think about it for a second. And then almost instinctually, your, your thumb goes back to whatever it is that you are drawn to spend more time with, whether it's social media or the news app or fantasy football, whatever it is, because we don't get that instant gratification from Jesus and from the hard work of trying to spend time with him, it's easy for us to drift back to what uh, may not be life-giving, but at least it's comforting. Or maybe you know that there's some relationship in your life, a friendship or a romantic relationship or a coworker, um, or maybe it's just some kind of vice that you have that you know it's not helping you follow Jesus. You know it's tempting you to, do, to go in the wrong direction. Maybe it's not a big thing, but it's tempting you, it's pulling you away. And yet, instead of trying to pull away from that and to find something different and to follow Jesus, it's so easy to just find our way back in those situations because 
It's hard to make new relationships or it's hard to build new habits. So we just go back to what we know and we go back to what's easy. But with Jesus coming, as the promised Israel shows us, is that God doesn't want that for us. He has something better in mind that he's calling us to. You see it consistently throughout scripture, and you can hear how desperately God wants us to turn back to him. He's so desperate about it, in fact, that he sends his only son to be born for this Christmas season to be able to set us free and bring us peace. He sends his son to do what we as God's people could never do, to follow him completely and to not give in to the pull that this sin and slavery has on us. And because we have, God's people, have had such a hard time resisting this pull back to the things that enslave us, and because God wants us to have peace, he sends his son Jesus to make a way for us to permanently leave that life of slavery. And as I mentioned before, Jesus, as the promised Israel, uh, has quite a lot of parallelisms kind of throughout his story. And one of them is that he goes into the wilderness, and instead of being like Israel, who said, right away, pretty much, "Eh, I think I'd rather go back to Egypt. Jesus remains strong when he's tempted. When Satan shows up and and gives him all of these things, like, you could have the the whole kingdom could be yours, which was a lie, by the way, but it's tempting, right? And Jesus remained strong. He didn't give in to the temptation to, to follow that life that will eventually lead to slavery. He lives out the faith that God's people have so, uh, for so long struggled to do. And you could look at this and think, wow, okay, so Jesus is basically like that annoying younger brother who like does all of the things that you never did and your parents just like better and like, wow, what a show off. But that's not how God sees it. God sees it as a rescue mission to bring us out of slavery and to bring us back to him once and for all. He wants to give us peace, peace of mind, peace of heart, peace for our souls. Galatians 5.1 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. And in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus himself says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest and peace for your soul. So Jesus coming as the coming Israel is a way for God to bring us peace through him, through his son. And not only peace, but we also see that Jesus comes to show us love. And it's a very specific type of love, at least in the way it's talked about in these passages. It's a a version of like a familial love. When you read this passage in Hosea, you can hear the love and the longing that God has for his people. And if that's not enough, he chooses to describe his relationship with his people in the context of a family. So I'm going to read to you um, some of Hosea 1, or Hosea 11, uh, and I just want you to listen to the ways that God describes uh, his, the, his relationship with his people in terms of like a relationship between a father and a son. He says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the balls, and they burned incense to images. But it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking him by the arms, But they did not realize it was I who healed them. 
I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed him. So you get all of these really tender scenes of God helping a child learn to walk, lifting them up to give them a hug, or bending down to feed them. And Joel and I aren't parents, but I am close with a number of parents uh, and very close with my nieces and my sister and brother-in-law. And every parent I've talked to has just described the way that having kids has really increased their understanding of God's love for us and how he views us. Because there's something that, for a lot of people, it's just this crazy, intense type of love that comes from having a kid and giving up all of these things, making sacrifices so that you can care for them, so that you can raise them, you can be there for them and have that relationship with them. And even then, even when those kids are not listening to you, when they're saying things that are not kind to you, uh, even when they're being really not great towards you, there's still this deep love that you have for them that does not, does not change no matter how they act towards you. And I just want to say that even if you don't have kids or if you never plan on having kids, I don't think you need to be a parent to have that um, analogy work for you or to make sense for you. Because like I said, if you get to know people who are parents, you spend time with them, you get to know their kids, develop relationships with their kids, it's a way that we get to see that analogy play out, even if you don't have it in your own personal life. And I think that's one of the beauties of the church. And even if you, again, if you don't have kids, this idea of a familial love being like a, a really close commitment or a really deep tie is something that we use in culture all the time, right? So like if you, maybe you don't have that with your family of origin, but you might have a group of friends or a group of people that at some point in your life you felt like these people were my family, right? It's a language that we use when we're trying to communicate to someone like, this is how close I am to this person, we often say, like, they're like family, or they're like a brother to me, or, you know, we use that language. So we know that this is something, that, like, we understand, even if it's not something we personally experience as, like, a family of origin or of having kids on our own. It's an idea and it's a language that we can, we get, right? We understand there's, like, a deep commitment or a deep tie, deep love that comes with family. And so... Even, and if you are close with your family of origin, another small example of this, like if you have siblings or, you know, maybe now you're married and you're talking about your family with your spouse and maybe you're complaining like, oh, I hate when my mom does this or, you know, my sibling is so annoying or whatever. But then if your spouse turns around and makes the same comment, you're kind of like, hey, you don't get to talk about my mom that way, <laughs> right? Like we sort of have this like feeling, there's this there's just something about these family ties that we can, we can get, we can understand what that's like. So whoever your family is, whether it's your family of origin, maybe it's your spouse and your kids, or maybe it's your friends, maybe it's the church family, there are deep ties that are woven with love, and that type of love is the love that God has for his people. And unfortunately, we see through all of Scripture that even though God has this deep love for us, we don't always do the best job in reciprocating it or returning it. Because the more, we the more that he calls, as Hosea says, the more we often turn away. And that's where Jesus comes in. He stands in for us as God's people, as God's son, as it says in Matthew, 
and loves God with the same type of deep familial ties that we so often betray. He makes it so that even though we have betrayed those ties, we can come running back to God as our Father. No matter how far we've run away, no matter how many times we've resisted his call, Jesus makes a way that we can return to him. And when we do, God is so overjoyed that he comes running towards us too. There's a story in scripture that describes that. Uh, And for the people in scripture who were reading it at that time, to have an adult man who's kind of like the head of the household running would have been like really weird and like dishonorable. I don't know why that was so bad for men to, adult men to run, but it was like, whoa, that's frowned upon. What are you doing? But that's how much God is excited when we return to him is that he takes off running to meet us as his children. And Jesus, as the promised Israel, gives us a reminder of that, of God's deep familial love that he has for us and that he wants us to be restored to his family. And as we talk about restoration, that's the last thing I want to bring out today about what Jesus offers in his coming, is that he offers hope for restoration. All three of the passages we looked at today would have been seen as very hopeful passages. In the Exodus, God says that he is going to rescue his people from slavery and settle them in a new land, giving them hope for a restored future. I'm actually going to read you a little bit from Exodus 3.8. It says, So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And the last few verses of Hosea 11 talk about bringing his people home. Jesus ultimately paves the way for us to be restored to God and for us to be restored to one another. Hosea 11.11 says, They will come from Egypt trembling like sparrows, from Assyria fluttering like doves, and I will settle them in their homes, declared the Lord. So when Matthew references these passages, he's not just saying, yeah, Jesus fits the storyline, see how all of it connects, but he's also saying, through Jesus, there is hope. People are going to be called from slavery and offered peace instead. They're going to remember and feel the familial love of God and experience restoration. They're going to be called home, and I'm going to settle them in new homes that are going to be great places for them to flourish. Jesus is about to bring positive, hopeful change. He's going to change our hearts. He's going to change our relationship with God. He's going to change our relationship with others. He's bringing hope for a new way of life. And I was recently listening to one of my favorite Bible teachers. Uh, Her name is Jen Wilkin. And she said something in this study that just kind of stopped me in my tracks and made me think for a second. But she said, you should never say that someone, including yourself, can't change. So anytime we think, oh, that person's just stuck in their ways, or I'm never going to beat this thing that I keep wrestling with, I can never get past this, she says, you should never say that because it's idolatry. She said, God is the only one who never changes. It's a part of his character. As we've been talking about in this series, he keeps his word. If he says he's going to do something, he does it. He is a consistent, uh, never-changing, something we can trust and rely on always. And that's not us. That's a way that we are different from God. God is unchanging, but we are not. 
So when we say, I, I can't change, I'm stuck in this way, or that person, they're never going to change. We're actually ascribing something to them that should only be ascribed to God. And we are committing idolatry. And this really made me stop, because I am someone who I can get a little bit cynical about things, um, and I'd honestly never thought about it that way. Usually when we say that something can't change or it's not going to change, we think of that in a negative way. But as you're ascribing it to God, it's actually a really positive thing. It's something that we can hang on to, that we can hold on to and, and feel secure in. And as I said, the other reason it stopped me is because I can be a little bit cynical sometimes. I can easily believe it about myself or about others or about my situation. I can believe this is really hard and it's probably going to be really hard forever. And, I, and this is never going to change. I'm never going to change. Uh, I'm never going to figure this out or they're never going to figure this out. And it was really encouraging for me to stop and say, that's not true. <laughs> I'm limiting God. I'm saying that God can't work in these situations in my life or in other people's lives when I say that. And that's not okay. We are quick to believe that we know more than God does about ourselves or about other people. And we are quick to give up on people's abilities to change. But Christmas reminds us that God is not. He never gave up on his people, even though they and we are so stubborn, we have the hardest hearts, and yet he continued to give us mercy upon mercy upon mercy, and we see that really clearly as we look at the way that these passages unfold, as we see how God rescued his people when he heard them cry, as we see how he continued to call to them over and over even though they turned away from him, and how ultimately he sent Jesus to be the one who could stand in the gap and to be able to bring us back to God once and for all. So we see us most clearly in the way that Jesus was willing to come to earth as a man at Christmas, to grow up and to minister to God's people, and ultimately to take our place on the cross. God never gave up on his people. And Christmas gives us hope that restoration is possible. Because from the moment Jesus was born, this was his path. Before he could walk, his ultimate path was to walk to the cross. And before he could talk, his ultimate path was to say, not my will, God, but yours be done. Before he could break bread and eat with his family, he knew that his body would be broken on behalf of us so that we could be restored to God. Also that he could fulfill God's promise and bring peace, love, and hope now as we celebrate at Christmas. So this Christmas, as we sort of head back into our time of response with worship through song, um, I invite you to take what you need. Whether you feel like you need to be reminded that you can have peace in Christ, that you've been set free from the slavery of sin, that you can return to him, you don't have to keep returning to these other things that are not life-giving, you can take that with you today. Or if you need to be reminded that God loves you as a son or as a daughter with a deep familial love, so uh, tender and caring and, and just loving, if you need to be reminded of that, you need to feel that and to take that with you as the, as the gift of this Christmas season, I encourage you to think about that today. Or if you need the hope that Jesus coming means things can change, that you can change, that the people around you can change, that the world can change, 
then remember that. Take that hope of restoration with you uh, as we continue to worship and celebrate Christmas this morning. So whatever it is, whichever of these three gifts that you feel like you really need to be focusing on, um, I hope that it encourages you this morning. We are going to continue on into our time of worship through song, and we're also going to take communion during that time. So if you haven't gotten a communion cup when you walked in, um, you can raise your hand and someone will make sure you get one, or they're in the lobby, you can grab one. Uh, and communion and Christmas always feel a little bit like disjointed, right? Like shouldn't we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, not the death of Jesus. But as I said earlier, I think it's just helpful to remember that Jesus' birth always meant to lead to his death. And those are the things that give us peace and give us love and give us hope in him. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will continue to worship through uh, song and through communion. Heavenly Father, we again thank you and praise you um, and just worship you for your love for us, for the ways that you continue to pursue us even when we turn away from you, the ways that you continue to work in our lives and in the lives of people around us, even when we don't always see it. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would give us each peace and love and hope this morning. Uh, whatever it is that we need this Christmas season, that you would provide it, that you would show us those things, uh, make them very clear to us, whether that's through your word or through community or through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we just ask you to work. And so, Lord, we are, again, come to you and praise you uh, for this Christmas season as we continue to worship through song. In your name we pray. Amen.